The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. title of our sermon this morning is a Romans Review. This is the second Romans Review that we've done, uh, not many, in our trek through Romans to this point. But I pray this will be helpful to you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're involved in a, a deeply involved now, in, entrenched in a weekly verse-by-verse uh, study of the book of Romans. And now this morning, we've arrived at a significant point in our progress, having completed chapter 6. And so at the risk of slowing down our blistering pace through this book, uh, the brothers have persuaded me that a a review of covered ground at this point would be helpful, and I concur. And so after uh, looking at individual trees for a while, I'm sometimes looking at one tree for two or three weeks, uh, it's sometimes helpful to step back and see how those familiar trees now fit into the forest as a whole. And so with the Lord's help this morning, we're going to endeavor a review. Uh, This will hopefully be a good opportunity, this review, uh, for you to put some of the awesome theology of this book over the last uh, couple of chapters together and enhance your understanding of what we've already been through. Sometimes it just helps to fit the pieces together. And so I hope to do that for us this morning. As you well know, uh, this letter to the church at Rome is essentially... Uh, Paul's exposition of the gospel. Uh, In his greeting to the church, Paul makes clear that he's been charged by God with preaching the gospel. That's his intention now, is to preach and to explain the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says that he is a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. In chapter 1, verse 5, that apostleship, as a sent one of God, apostle with a capital A, right? That apostleship and that charge of preaching the gospel is given for producing, as it says there in verse 5, the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, among all nations, for his name. In other words, Paul is to preach this gospel to all the nations. He's to preach this gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul then explains to the church at the end of his introduction in chapter 1 there, that he's often planned to come to them, he's often intended to visit Rome, uh, and his hope in keeping with his calling and keeping with his ministry now is to have some gospel fruit among the church at Rome, among them in Rome also, just as he has had in his other missionary journeys, just as he has had among the other Gentiles. And so Paul then having that good desire, having that charge from the living God, says in verse 15, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And Paul then boldly states his theme. He states the intention of his work, the intention of his effort in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul is to preach the gospel. That's what Paul is here to do. The gospel, or good news, Paul says, is the power of God to salvation. And it's the power of God to salvation because God has determined to save sinners through the preaching of the gospel. It's through the the preaching of the gospel that God saves sinners. It's the power of God to salvation, do you see? 
So when the gospel then is preached, whether it's preached to Jews or it's preached to anyone else, the Greeks, and when in response to that preached gospel, a person turns to Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ in faith for salvation, that person who turns to Christ in faith, God justifies. It is the power of God to salvation because God justifies the sinner through his faith. That person, that sinner, was unjust. God declares them just. That sinner was unrighteous, and God declares them to be righteous. And he does so on the basis of their faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The one who is just shall live and not die through the means of his faith. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's... um, not like the God of Islam, right? The God of Islam who arbitrarily selects someone for salvation. I'll forgive that one and not forgive this one. God justifies sinners in the name of Jesus Christ, amen? Well, just because you declare someone to be righteous doesn't make them righteous. Anyone who has any sense of true justice knows that it would be the height of injustice to call or to treat a guilty man as though he were innocent, despite our country today doing that very thing. The real power of the gospel lies in the fact that God does not merely declare a guilty person to be innocent. The real power of the gospel lies in the fact that God renders or accounts that one as righteous in order to be able to make that declaration. In the gospel, it's the righteousness of God that is revealed. Christ's active and perfect obedience to the whole law, Christ's passive obedience in his suffering and death, and that perfect, that complete righteousness of Jesus Christ is then given to the sinner. It is imputed to the sinner or accounted to the sinner as a gift of God's grace on the basis of that person's faith. Christ takes his sin, Christ takes his shame, and Christ is treated as the sinner. The sinner receives that righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift of God's grace and is treated as a son. And even the faith that he has is not of himself, it is the gift of God. It's in this way that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's in this way that in power, God saves, justifies the sinner through Christ. Jew or Gentile, man or woman, boy or girl, The righteousness, that righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given as a gift from one person's faith to another person's faith, you could say, from faith to faith to faith, Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. Now, the rest of the letter, then, is Paul's explanation of that that gospel. Paul's explanation. Paul begins by explaining that everyone is is in need of the gospel. Jew and Gentile, man or woman, boy or girl, everyone needs the gospel. Why? Whether pagan idolaters or highly religious, those who have the word of God or those who do not have the word of God, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul makes his case that all are responsible to obey God's law and all are guilty of breaking it. All all are guilty of breaking it. We need the gospel because we are law breakers. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. Despite what the world tells you, 
despite what Graham Graham might say about you. We're all guilty. We're not good people. You're not a good person. You have sinned against your creator. You have no righteousness of your own. You deserve to perish eternally in hell. That's what you deserve. That's who you are. That's what the Bible says. That's God's assessment of you. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, or by your works, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, it's impossible that your salvation would have anything to do with your works. It's impossible that your salvation would have anything to do with who you are. You're just not that lovely, right? And that's why we so desperately need that gift of righteousness righteousness that is offered through the gospel. We need that righteousness. Our salvation is entirely due the grace of God alone through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone applied to the one who believes through his faith alone. The fallen people, fleshly people, have to be convinced of that fact. We have to be convinced of that fact. We like to think that we rule ourselves. We like to think that we're autonomous. We like to think that we are free creatures the bent of our sinful nature is one of sinful self-reliance. The bent of our nature is one of sinful self-determination. I'm the master of my soul. I'm the captain of my fate, right? So on the one side, we have to be convinced that we don't contribute anything to our salvation because we think there must be something that we can do. We have control. We rule ourselves. We determine our own destiny. So we have to be convinced that we don't contribute anything to our salvation. And then secondly, on the other hand, we have to be convinced that a salvation for which I have contributed nothing is a salvation that can be trusted, is a salvation that is sure to me, is a salvation that I can believe in. In the infinite wisdom of God, justification by faith is the means by which we are assured of both. Justification by faith is a means of proving both. In describing faith, Charles Spurgeon uh, tells the story of a silly servant who is bidden to open a door. He sets his shoulder to that door and he pushes with all his might, but the door stirs not. And he cannot enter no matter what strength he uses. He cannot enter what strength he may. Another comes with a key, with a key, and he easily unlocks the door and enters right readily, Spurgeon says. Those who would be saved by works are pushing at heaven's gate without result. Those who would be saved by their works, saved by their efforts, saved by their religion, saved by being a good person, saved by their good works somehow outweighing their bad works. Those who would be saved by their works are pushing against heaven's gate, as it were, and it does not budge. But faith, faith is the key that unlocks and opens the door immediately, right? The Lord commands you to believe in his son and you may do so and doing so believing in the son, you shall live. Use the key. Amen. Use the key. You see how faith, faith connects us with the one who is my righteousness. Faith connects me vitally with the one who is my salvation. It connects me to him. Works is dependent entirely upon me. 
It does not connect me to him. It's all grounded or founded in me. My decision, my will, my effort, my strength, my doing, my choice, my decision, right? That, those works turn me in upon myself, whereas genuine living faith connects me to the one who is my righteousness, connects me to the one who is my salvation. There's a story about two men who went overboard above Niagara Falls. And as the two men were being carried downstream by the current, a people on the shore managed to lasso the two men with a rope. One of the men took the rope. He was lassoed with the rope. He held, clung to the rope and was pulled to shore. The other man, seeing a large log floating by, let go of the rope and clung to the log instead. He apparently thought that the large log would keep him afloat. Well, obviously, we know what happens at the end of that story. One man was saved, the other perished over the falls. There was no union, right? No connection between the log and the shore. <laughs> Do you see? The log is swept along with the current. There was no safety, there was no security to be found on the log. The one who presumes to work, to clean himself up, to somehow earn salvation through his own effort or through his own religion or his own opinions, the one who just thinks to himself, it's all going to work out in the end, is like the man who has laid hold of a log. There is no connection to Jesus Christ through those things. Right? There is no connection through your own effort to Jesus Christ. There is no connection through man's religion to Jesus Christ or to salvation or to heaven. There is no connection in worldly philosophy or manly, man's philosophy, worldly thinking. There is no connection between us and heaven, between us and the shore, except for Jesus Christ. That connection with him who is my salvation, with the one who is my righteousness, that connection is made through faith, genuine faith, true faith, living faith, and through faith alone. And where there is true faith, true faith connects all of it. Then true faith connects my efforts in religion, my desire to learn and to study and to live by his word. It connects my works, right? It connects me vitally to the one who is my salvation. And faith, though it often may seem like a thin thread, but because it is vitally connected to Jesus Christ, it is as strong and as inviolable as the great God who holds the other end of the rope, right? It is omnipotent power that pulls the line. It is omnipotent power that holds the man. And the Lord Jesus Christ our Heavenly Father, God, does that through the means of faith. So it's in then his, this exposition of the gospel given to the church at Rome that Paul sets out now to convince us of those two things, that our salvation has nothing to do with our works and that our salvation by faith alone is a sure and secure salvation. In chapter 4, Paul works to convince us that salvation is by necessity through faith alone in Christ alone. In chapters 5 through 8, Paul sets out to convince us that such a salvation is absolutely, undeniably sure and secure to those who have put all their trust in Jesus Christ to pull them to shore. You see? And we see that purpose communicated in chapter 4, verse 16. 
chapter 4, verse 16. Paul refers to the example of Abraham as being a quintessential example of one who is justified by faith apart from any works of the law. Abraham simply believed God. He believed God and his faith was credited to him or accounted to him for righteousness. He received the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift of God's grace, okay? On the basis of his faith. And on the basis of that biblical proof, the example of Abraham, Paul says this in verse 16. Therefore, it, the promise of God, right? Therefore, the promise of God is of faith, given on the basis of faith, so that it might be according to grace, and it's according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It is by faith alone, brothers and sisters, our salvation is by faith alone, so that it might be entirely by grace alone. And our salvation is all of grace, entirely by grace alone, so that our salvation is sure. You see the connection in those things? You see the line of reasoning, right? Like sheets hanging on a line, like logs on a river, right? It is by faith alone, so that it might be by grace. And if our salvation is by grace alone, then it is absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably sure to all the seed, all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is Certain. If your salvation has anything to do with you, listen, if your salvation has anything, anything to do with you, I'm going to put the emphasis on that, anything to do with you, your work, your decision, your religion, your faithfulness, even your own ability to exercise faith, if it has anything to do with you, then you can't trust it. And you are doomed. And you will perish Far from being sure to all the seed of a secure salvation, that would be sure to all the seed of a certain damnation, you see? But if our salvation is entirely of grace, and that through the means or through the instrumentality of faith, then God is the one who secures it all. Christ is our surety. The Spirit is our guarantee. And it is absolutely, undeniably certain. That's what Paul wants to convince us of in these chapters. That's Paul's point. Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8. That's Paul's point, right? We're building to that conclusion. So chapter 5, verse 1 then. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, notice in the past, right? Having been justified by faith, we have, present active ongoing, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not been justified by faith, if you've not turned from your sin to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have no peace with God. You have no peace. You are an enemy of God, right? But having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Definite, sure, certain, right? We have it. That peace with God is ours. And we have that peace, verse 2, through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we also now have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's as though we've been transferred. Paul will say later, we're no longer under law. We're now under grace. 
We've been transferred. We've been conveyed. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law, under the condemnation that hangs over our head because of our sin. We're no longer under that condemnation. We've been transferred now, as it were, to a different realm. When you raised, uh, were raised in Jesus Christ, uh, Paul uses the illustration of coming out of the waters of baptism. You were raised, as it were, from the grave in Christ. You were raised to walk in newness of life. You were raised a new creation, given a new heart, a new nature. Not there, but prior. Uh, but you were raised to new life in Jesus Christ. That resurrection, a depiction, as it were, of transferring you from one realm to another realm. You've been conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's in that kingdom that we now stand. Do you see? Through Jesus Christ, we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Those verbs, have access and in which we stand, are in the perfect tense. Meaning that it was done, and it's completed, and we have it. (laughs) We have it now. It's been completed. We've been transferred. This is now our current status. We have access by faith into this grace now in which we stand. And, future tense, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope is not a a wishful thinking there. We look forward to it. Hope is a certainty. We look forward in a certain resolved hope to what will come, the glory of God. This is what we've been given, brothers and sisters, past, present, and future. You see that in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, past, present, and future. Look at verse 3. But not only that, not only that, but in the present, we also glory or rejoice in tribulations. It's the same word there, rejoice. We rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now that kind of hope, verse 5, does not disappoint. It's a hope that you will never be ashamed of, right? Why does it not disappoint? Because it's not an empty hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's a certain hope. And we know this, verse 5, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart is a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. Do you see? Now, the intention of Paul then in chapter 5 is to bolster our assurance or to ground that hope for us. He's building our faith. He wants to bolster our assurance and to ground our hope. Of all people, God's people should be marked by joy. Of all people, of all people, God's people should be a joyful people, full of joy, abounding in joy. Verse, chapter 5, verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What about all of our difficulty? Chapter 5, verse 3, we rejoice in tribulations, right? Knowing that God even works through tribulation by his grace to do us good. So joy and rejoicing is the common even commanded character of the Christian life. We're to be joyful people. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that we can rejoice when we ourselves are sinful? How can we rejoice when we often face such awful or such dire circumstances? Well, one word, hope. Hope. We have a settled, certain, determined, resolved hope. A Christian looks upon the world 
A Christian looks upon his life, he looks at his circumstances, and he sees the world, he sees his circumstances, he sees life, he sees reality, as they truly are, as they truly are, as the word of God reveals them to be. He sees the spiritual or the the heavenly spiritual reality behind his circumstances. He sees with the eyes of faith, as it were, the reality that God transcends his temporal circumstances. And because of the hope that he has in Jesus Christ, because of the hope that is set before him, he rejoices. We have in that uh, an example from our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, right? Despised the shame. In other words, counted the shame a common thing, nothing, right? Because of the joy, the hope that was set before him. We rejoice, he rejoiced. It's why saints over centuries have accepted death rather than compromise. It's for the joy set before us, the hope that is set before us. It's why Paul, having been beaten, stoned, left for dead, continues to labor heart, soul, mind, and strength for these precious believers in Rome and others. It's why, it's how you and I are going to make it through our light and momentary afflictions to reach the celestial city. It's hope, 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 faith in Christ for the future, for what Christ will certainly do for us, hope. This hope will not fall short of any of its promises. Everything that God has promised is yes and amen in Christ. It will not fall short of any of its promises. It will not disappoint. It will not let you down. Now, what is it, to Paul's point here, what is it that makes it so certain? How is it that we have such a certain hope? It's because it's God who has promised. God is the one who has promised. Because God, who cannot lie, is the one who guarantees our hope. And he has done so by sending his own son. Brothers and sisters, if God has sent his own son, our hope is, (laughs) there isn't language to describe it. To say it's absolutely certain just doesn't quite do it, right? It is certain. It is sure. If God sent his own son, then you can take it to the bank. God is going to fulfill all of his promises in his son. But we still doubt, don't we? (laughs) You sometimes think about your own sin and doubt whether God could love you in the way that God seems to be describing that he loves us. Everything about us, everything within us seems calculated to antagonize God toward us. Everything about us. Our thoughts, our actions, our desires, our imaginations, our affections, our emotions, everything about us seems calculated to antagonize God toward me, toward you. Paul says, give me a moment. I want to settle that doubt for you, right? Paul wants to take care of that doubt for you. Listen, chapter five, verse seven. Men will scarcely give their life for anyone. Men on this world, in this world, will scarcely give their life for anyone. Maybe on very rare occasions, chapter 5 or 7, men will give their life for someone they deem worthy. But God's love, however, is of an entirely different sort altogether. God's love 
is of a different sort. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, that language isn't quite sufficient, is it either, either, right? Language just fails. While we were enemies of God by wicked works, while we were rebels against him, while we were traitors, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were sinners. And if that's true, if that's true, and it is, if that's how God has determined to love me, if that's how God has determined to love you, verse 9, much more than. The only way to know to, to, to get across the emphasis of that is by saying it louder. <laughs> much more than. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Because if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we absolutely certainly shall be saved by his life. Do you see? It's an a fortiori argument. If A is true, and it certainly is, then B is absolutely certain. You see? If God reconciled us to himself when we were enemies, and he did, sending his son to die for us when we were enemies, and he did, then how do you think he's going to treat his friends? How do you think he's going to treat those who are entirely reconciled to him? Much more. Having been reconciled, we will most certainly be saved by his life. Why do we doubt it? Why is our faith so small and feeble sometimes? Dr. Murray said this, not only do we derive from our reconciliation the assurance that we shall have salvation in the future, but we also derive from our reconciliation an exultant glorying in the present. We rejoice. Well, that's a great argument, isn't it? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, what a great argument. Extremely helpful. So if you think that, makes our salvation certain, Paul says, I've got more, right? I've got more. The ultimate ground, the ultimate ground on which the certainty and security of our salvation should be built is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate ground is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we are united to Christ through faith, redeemed by his blood, purchased, ransomed by his blood, there is nothing that can ever sever that union. Now, Paul begins that argument in chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. At the heart of Paul's argument is the biblical principle of representation or union. Representation, right? When Adam sinned, Adam sinned as the federal head or the representative of all those who were born in union with Adam. That's everyone who's born, right? When Jesus Christ lived and died as sinless in the sight of God, Having perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law, Jesus Christ lived and died as the federal head or as the representative of all those who would be born again in him, in union with him. So just as humanity was condemned on the basis of Adam's one sin, 
so humanity may be saved or justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Paul conceives his entire life as one glorious act of obedience, right? Based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point. Just as surely as those who are in Adam face all the horrific consequences of that union, right? Condemnation and death, the wrath of God abiding on you, the terrors of hell awaiting you, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Just as surely as those who are in union with Adam face that horror is just as surely as those who are in union with Jesus Christ through faith are the blessed beneficiaries of all that that union represents. Life eternal, communion with the triune God, an inheritance with Christ, the blessings of his kindness toward us in the ages to come. So if you've turned to Christ in faith then, you have every reason to rejoice in those blessings. Every reason. You are no longer under the headship of Adam. You are no longer under the curse of the law. You are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. A union which will never be broken and a union which brings with it all of the blessings of what Christ has won for us. All of the blessings that Christ has secured for us. It's as certain as your union with Adam was certain. That's going to be Paul's point, right? How do we know that we're in union with Adam? Well, one good indication is that we die. <laughs> Another good indication is you're a sinner apart, apart from Jesus Christ, right? You sin in thought, you sin in word, you sin in deed. Your imaginations are sinful, your desires are sinful, right? We're sinful and that eventuates in death. Even the world mocks that and says, two things that are set, certain, death and taxes, now, you can drop the taxes. Death is certain, right? Amen. Death is certain. That's, that's based upon your union with Adam. You die. You die because you are united, if you will, through representation, through federal headship to your original father, Adam. Just as certain as that is, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will live eternally. Paul says it's not just as certain it is much more certain. If death is certain, life in Christ is much more certain to those who have put their faith and trust in him, okay? Now, so many revolt against the biblical teaching of representation and headship, somehow thinking it's unfair. But the reality of our union with Jesus Christ is that it, it, it's what makes our salvation so secure, Paul explains this, verse 12, listen. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread or permeated to all men because all sinned. The Bible-believing, Bible-reading Christians know and believe that the one man is Adam. And through Adam's sin, sin and death enter the world. We see the effects of that. Adam sinned in the garden by disobeying God with respect to that forbidden tree. And through Adam's sin, he died spiritually that very day and would eventually die physically. Okay? And those who don't, don't turn in faith to Christ will die a second death eternally. Okay? So in this manner, in this manner, sin and death 
enter the world. Verse 12 then states that death spread to all of us because we all sinned. Verse 12. In the grammar, we all sinned is an aorist indicative. Paul is speaking of a single act in the past. And we explained in our sermon on this text a while ago. It means that the sin of the one man, Adam, is the sin of all men. The one sin of the one man, Adam, is the sin of all men. In other words, Adam's sin, because he is our head, because he was our representative before Jesus Christ, his sin is imputed or credited to the account of all those who are born represented by him. Do you see? The reason for this is called federal headship or representation. God entered into covenant with Adam as a representative head for the whole human race. Our confession says it this way, chapter 6, article 3. Adam and Eve being the root, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of their sin was imputed or accounted, and their corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. In other words, by ordinary childbirth. Being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. So it's Mother's Day. Turn to your mother and say, thanks, Mom. (laughs) It's called federal headship. Representation. David says, behold... Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You see? Federal headship, representation. The sin of Adam imputed to those born represented by Adam. Right? It's in this way that we are reckoned or accounted as guilty of Adam's sin, and it's in this way that we suffer the penalty for that sin. Not because we personally or actually committed a sin that was like the transgression of Adam, but because Adam served as our covenant head in our relationship to God. So if that's true, brothers and sisters, and it is, by virtue of our union with Adam, then what must be true for those who are united with Jesus Christ through faith? What must be true of them? Federal headship or representation makes this possible. Adam was a type of him who was to come. Verse 15. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. If it's true that we die, having inherited Adam's sin then much more shall we eternally live having been united to Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God's grace is the imputation of Christ's own righteousness through the gospel. He gives it to us. Whereas Adam ruined us, Christ redeems us. As we were rendered sinners and condemned in the disobedience of the first Adam, we are justified, declared righteous through the obedience of the last Adam. 
Is it true that people die? That's because of Adam. (laughs) Much more will those in union with Christ live eternally. Now you die because you sin too, obviously. You sin because you were given a sin nature, inherited a sin nature, and you are a sinner. And you'll perish because of your own sin. That sin of Adam, original sin, so to speak, something to be repented of, something we need forgiveness for. Note the contrast now set up by Paul in the text. Note the contrast. This is chapter 5. Note the contrast beginning in verse 15. Verse 15. By the offense of one, many died. You see? By the obedience of one, the gift of grace, that righteousness, abounded to many. Verse 16. The offense of the one led to condemnation. The obedience of the one led to justification. See that in the text. Verse 17. Death reigned through the one man's offense, but life reigns through the one man's righteousness. Verse 18. Through one man's offense came judgment to all, Through one man's righteousness came justification, right standing with God. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many are made sinners. By one man's obedience, many are made righteous. It's his righteousness that is credited to them by their faith, right? Through their faith. Verse 21, sin reigned through death by the one. Grace reigned through righteousness to eternal life by the other. You see the contrast set up in that text, right? Between the first Adam and the last great Adam. It was in his representation for guilty, condemned sinners that Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. It was in the place of hopeless, hell-bound sinners that Jesus Christ obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. And it was in the place of wrath, deserving, hell-deserving sinners that Jesus Christ hung upon the tree under the curse and died there bearing the undiluted wrath of God that those sinners had justly earned. And Jesus Christ took it upon himself. His perfect life, his wrath-satisfying substitutionary sacrifice was accomplished as the covenant head, the federal head for his people. And all those who would put their faith and trust in him for his imputed righteousness. That's why we call it um, 1689 federalism. Our confession of faith is 1689 and federalism being a description of covenant theology or um, federal headship of the Lord Jesus Christ over his own. The last Adam, the great Adam came and succeeded where the first Adam had failed. It all depends, then, on your relationship to one of these two covenantal heads. Everything depends on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Good summary, right? As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. As in Adam sin reigns in death, much more through Jesus Christ will grace abound through righteousness to eternal life. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So what is it, brothers and sisters, then, that guarantees our blessed status? What is it that that guarantees, that is, that makes that salvation so sure, 
so infinitely secure. It's our union with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. We are brought into a vital union with him. Well, what about our remaining sin then? Someone would ask. What about our remaining sin? What about the Christians ongoing battle with sin? We're in union with Jesus Christ. What about my remaining corruption? What about my remaining sin? Doesn't that disqualify us in the eyes of God? Well, Jesus Christ died to sin once for all of us. He died to sin. His death was a death to sin for you, for me. And we who are in union with Jesus Christ through faith have died ourselves to sin in him. That's the message of chapter six. Chapter six, verse five. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we've been brought into union with Jesus Christ in the likeness of his death, then certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus Christ raised to life. We are united with him in the likeness of his resurrection such that we are raised to life in him. Knowing this, verse six, that our old man was crucified with him. That old man is dead. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, right? It's so that the body of our sin, thought of as a collective whole, can be set aside. It has been nailed to the cross. That handwriting of requirements that was against us, nailed to the cross. The body of my sin, done away with. And that I should no longer be a slave of sin. No longer did Jesus Christ at the cross simply set away, forgive me my sin, deal with my sin, remove my guilt and shame, taking the punishment that I deserve, but the death that Christ died, he died to the power of sin, such that in union with him, his death to the power of sin becomes my death to the power of sin. So that we should no longer, verse six, be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Christ. Therefore, think with me, brother, sister. Don't doubt for a second that Christ has the power to save you from your sin. Don't doubt. That's a matter of faith. Don't doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved you from, not in, but from your sins. Look to him in faith without doubting. The doubter is the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, right? Let him not think that he'll receive anything from the Lord, right? Don't doubt. Look to Jesus Christ in faith. Don't doubt for a second that Jesus Christ can save you from your sin, right? Verse 11, and in faith, knowing that, in faith, verse 11, reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a matter of faith. Now that you are in union with Jesus Christ, the Christian's ongoing relationship to sin is one of resistance. One of resistance. So in chapter 6, verse 11 then, Paul sets before us, for us the path now that we're to walk, the measures that we're to take in this matter of remaining sin in the life of a Christian. Here's what we're to do. This is how we are to wage holy warfare with indwelling sin. This is how we have the victory in him. The first step involves the exercise of faith. And Paul states the matter both negatively and positively in verse 11. First, reckon yourself, consider yourself as a matter of faith to be dead indeed to sin by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. I am indeed dead to sin. Secondly, reckon yourself 
or consider yourself as a matter of faith to be alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what does that mean? The word reckon involves taking certain facts into consideration, facts that we've discussed. It involves making a calculation on the basis of those facts and then coming to a sound judgment concerning those facts. So we're to consider the Lord's death to sin on our behalf. We're to consider the Lord at the cross bearing our sin upon himself, taking the punishment that we deserve. We're to consider our death to sin in union with him. We are to receive these things as true. It's a matter of faith. And on the basis of those facts, render our judgment. I am dead to sin. Because of what Christ has done, I am dead to sin. It is a matter of faith. Do you see? Calculate based on the facts and render your judgment. Paul says, reckon yourself, consider yourself dead to sin. In our death to sin, in union with him, we are to receive these things as true, right? I'm to assert this fact. I'm to assert this fact on the basis of all that I know and understand and believe. And when assailed by temptations, when the tempter comes and he whispers in my ear, sometimes he's shouting in my ear, right? I am to turn and to say, I am dead to sin. I am not your slave any longer. And by the grace of God, through the power and strength of his spirit, through the means or the instrumentality of our faith, our trusting in Christ for these glorious promises, we can flee that temptation and refuse to obey it in its lusts. That's a promise of God. I am not to present the members of my body. I am not to present the faculties of my soul as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. I'm not to do it. I am to resist. Part one. Part two. Right? On the same basis, on the same basis, I am to consider our Lord's resurrection to life and my resurrection from the dead in union with him, to new life in him. And I am to receive these things and all that they entail as true. And on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, for those realities, I am to render my judgment. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I am to assert that fact on the basis of all that I know, on the basis of all that I understand, on the basis of all that I believe, And when assailed by temptations, when the tempter comes and he whispers in my ear, I am to come to the Lord for strength and for hope and for help in my time of need. I'm to come to him for power. I can freely, freely express my own frailty, my own weakness, and throw myself, cast myself upon him because he cares for me. When I am weak, that's when he comes through with strength. When I am weak, he is strong. And I am to present my members then, I am to present the faculties of my soul, not as instruments of uncleanness or unrighteousness to sin. I am to present the faculties of my soul, the members of my body, as instruments of righteousness, as a slave of God. Instruments of obedience. It's in faith, that that kind of faith, do you see, that we're commanded to fight We are commanded to fight in faith. 
Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. It's two parts. A lot of times we're, we're faced with one. Right? If I can just stop this, if I can stop this, if I can stop this, if I can stop this. And you're not thinking about adding this and adding this. You are alive to God in Christ. Pursue righteousness, right? Put off the old man and seek those things which are above in heaven where Christ dwells, right? We are to fight against sin. Verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but we fight against sin by pursuing holiness. But rather, as you put off, right, the old man, you're putting on the new, but rather present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Anyone who fights by faith has this precious promise. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law, but under grace. If you're putting off, putting off, putting off, putting off, striving, striving, striving to stop, 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 you are like that one who has swept the house clean (laughs) and having put off, put out that wicked demon, he comes back with seven of his buddies and finds the place swept and put in order. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. It's not enough, brother, sister, to strive, put off, put off, put off, put on. Pursue righteousness, right? Set your mind on things above. You're not under law, but under grace. But doesn't that mean I don't have to be concerned about sin at all? I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace. I shouldn't have to be concerned about sin at all. No. The substance of the promise is this, verse 14. The substance of the promise is this, sin shall not have dominion over you. The reason, the reason that sin shall not have dominion over you is this, you're not under law, you're under grace. Sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under law, you're under grace. Sin exercises dominion over a person through the law. Through the law, sin stirs up evil desire. That's going to be Romans 7 coming up next week if the Lord allows. Sin stirs up evil, evil desire. The law condemns us in sin. And sin kills us. Sin kills us. But now, in union with Jesus Christ through faith, we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. You're no longer under the condemnation of the law. Jesus Christ has taken upon himself our condemnation. The law can no longer condemn me. Sin has lost its power. Do you see? Sin will not have dominion over you. It's lost its power. Jesus Christ took upon himself my condemnation. He bore the curse of the law for me. He bore the curse of the law for you if you put your faith in him. So sin's power over you, once exercised through the law, that power is now broken. I'm no longer under the condemnation of the law. Sin doesn't have that power over me any longer. I'm under the merciful outpouring of his grace. You see? Where the law was impotent in breaking sin's dominion, grace ends sin's dominion for good. Now, having once been a slave to sin leading to death, verse 17, we have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered and... Having been set free from sin, we became slaves of righteousness. Set free from our slavery of sin that we might serve another master. 
that we might become slaves of God. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, think back with me. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You had no concern for righteousness, no regard for righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? None whatsoever. The end of those things is death. Shameful, right? Shameful. Verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin, and to bring that point full circle, through our union with Jesus Christ, do you see? Through our, what about our ongoing battle with sin? Does that somehow cast doubt on the security of our salvation? Paul says, no. You are in union with Jesus Christ. Now, verse 22, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Two types of people. Do you see them? Two different realms heading toward two different destinations. All of this, this instruction, this teaching from Paul, takes every bit of this out of the category we're out of the realm of superficiality, right? As most worldly religions, if not all of them, attempt to deal with sin superficially or don't attempt to deal with sin at all, in the infinite wisdom of God, we see how the Lord has dealt with sin thoroughly, completely, entirely through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, through our union with him, to make our salvation absolutely sure. You can be certain that the Bible is God's word. And all of that other nonsense is worldly philosophy, pagan idolatry. It is the word of God that stands that test, do you see? In chapter 7, it will begin next week, hopefully, Paul explains the presence then he explains the presence of that remaining sin in the life of a believer. And he explains the presence of sin that we might take encouragement from that and fight holy warfare, right? Fight the battle that we're to fight. Chapter 8, he then reassures us that despite that ongoing battle, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in union with Christ Jesus. All building to the inevitable conclusion of Paul's case in chapter 8, Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? All of these things that we're considering, what are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who in the world can stand against us? It's a rhetorical question. No one, no one. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. That argument stands above them all. Do you see? Verse 37, in all of these things then, we in Christ are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's point through this section of text, Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, is to convince us that our salvation is sure. I am persuaded, Paul says, in conclusion, that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All glory, honor, and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and forever. All God's people said, Amen. amen, amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we glory in this gospel, glory in our Lord Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for us. We exult, Lord, in what you have done. Our hearts pour over, overflow their banks with gratitude for all that you've secured for us. Thank you, Lord, for your infinite wisdom who has delivered us, Lord, to such a great salvation. And may we, Lord, in our ignorance, often to our shame, may we not take it uh, for granted, Lord. May we not receive the grace of God in vain, but may we rejoice in these realities and rejoice in these truths as Paul is calling us to. And may we, in faith, embrace these realities such that we live our lives now in light of these glorious facts in light of all that you have done for us, in light of all that Christ has secured for us in the battle with sin, that we might through faith be victorious in Jesus Christ, uh, in hope for the future, that we might rest and live and trust in what is laid up for us in heaven. And may we honor you in all of these things. May it be for the everlasting praise and worship of your glorious name. We pray these things in and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.